it is my uh, task now to introduce the lecturer. I think it would be presumptuous of me to introduce to an audience of this kind this famous man in the world of aviation. May I confine myself therefore to reminding you that Sir George Edwards, our lecturer tonight, chairman of the British Aircraft Corporation Limited, and he has spent his last 38 years with that company and its famous predecessor, Vickers Armstrong Limited. He progressed through the stream of engineering and design to become managing director and chairman. And in that time, saw designed, established into service many famous military and civil aircraft. He has also been the recipient of many, many distinguished awards and distinctions, of which I could perhaps mention the Guggenheim Medal, Fellowship of the Royal Society, and the Order of Merit. He's been in latterly heavily involved in the major cooperative programs in Europe. The Concorde, the Jaguar, and the MRCA. In fact, the only one that doesn't seem to have a hand in are the helicopter programs. Now, with this wide experience, he has had many, many successes. There have been a number of heartbreaks. And this, I'm sure, has provided plenty of experience for the lecture to which we are all looking forward with the greatest anticipation. Ladies and gentlemen, may I now present Sir George Edwards, past president of the Society and our lecture tonight, the 62nd Wilbur Northern Wright Memorial Lecture. Thank you very much, Mr. President. As I've already confided in you, we have what they call a problem, and as you've already indicated, that wouldn't be the first one that we'd had. I've arranged with my old friend, Professor Nicholas Hoff, who is going to be kind enough to propose a vote of thanks, that if I'm still going on at nine o'clock, we'll have a break about eight, <laughs> and uh, then he and I will come back and we'll finish it off and chat one another up and say what a couple of good chaps we are. Jolly difficult, actually, getting these things into time. It's jolly difficult getting anything into time. And uh, this lecture is like one chap said about my daughter when she was born. Typical aircraft, late and overweight. <laughs> I, uh, you'll be pleased to know that you're going to be plunged in darkness <coughs> and you're going to stay there. When I've reached the end, I'll make enough noise that any of you that have had a long and tiring day and feel your old eyes need resting, you'll have the opportunity to get all bright and alert and say that was jolly good, even though you haven't heard half of it. Now, it's a great honor to me, Mr. President, to be invited to give this uh, lecture. And it was uh, a bit of a problem, really, to know what to do about it. It's a great temptation when you're my age and you've been at it as long as I have to blather away about all the things that you did in the past and so on. 
And uh, it's a temptation, quite frankly, that I didn't resist. <laughs> so I'm going to blather away about the things that I did in the past. And if by any chance any of the younger members of the community who still have their uh, jobs to do in front of them, as distinct from some of the rest of us, can discern any sort of a message here and there in what I say, then I hope, A, they'll discern it, and uh, B, they'll have the courage to uh, do something about it. Otherwise, I should be wasting my time. And I've done that often enough not to want to go on doing it more than I can help. Two other things that I should say before I get swept up in my own verbosity. One is that um, I rate this as a personal invitation to say what I like, and uh, nothing is in any way to be attributed to the views of the British government, the French government, the British Aircraft Corporation, or anybody else. And the second one is that had it, had it not been for the devotion and... Uh, hard work that uh, my colleagues Spud Boer and Theo Small had put into this, um, I wouldn't have got here at all. So first of all, it's not to do with anybody else as far as responsibility is concerned. Second of all, thank the chaps very much for doing so much work on it. Now what I'm going to try to do, so that you'll have a rough idea of what it's all about, <coughs> I'm going to try to go on a bit about one or two jobs that I've been involved in. And this isn't actually going to be a catalogue of all the jobs I've been involved in. It's going to be one or two in which there are odd little bits in them that, that might be of interest and from which one or two lessons might be drawn. Then I'm going to try to give a bit of an indication of the fact that I don't think all is lost yet. And um, if I haven't worn myself out, and if you haven't all left, uh, at the end of it I will try to uh, <coughs> point out one or two things that I think might be done a bit better. This is an interesting aeroplane because it was the first one that did any powered and controlled flight. This was Wright Flyer 1. These chaps did four flights on the first day, which is 70 years ago, fairly soon. 17th of December, in fact. The wingspan was 40 feet 4 inches, and that's just about the same as Sydney Cam's Hurricane. most notable thing to me about this is that these fellows really knew what they were up to. There was no cup and come again about that. They were engineers. They knew what they were doing. They even did a thousand hours of wind tunnel work before they produced that, and they made a jolly good job of it. They had their problems, like we all have. I was fascinated to uh, learn that before they did this first flight they wrote a letter home in which it said please do not mention the fact of our building a power machine to anybody the newspapers would take a great delight in following us in order to record our troubles <laughs> I suppose it's uh, it has to be. Now, I hadn't started, actually, when... I wasn't in the game when they started this. I was minus five, in fact, at that particular moment. But I got into this aircraft racket a bit later on. <coughs> Having spent some years and some jolly hard work uh, 
doing real engineering and having to take a fair measure of responsibility for designing and stressing and building some pretty complicated things and then going out and getting them put up. And by complicated things I'm talking about the engine room of a tug or a, a large hydraulic lift or a fairly substantial hydraulic crane or an electric crane or a bridge. Uh, I decided for some reason that's never been quite clear to me in the end of 1934 to go and have a dabble at the aeroplane racket because I was a, by a fair way of being a bit of a structural bloke. And I turned up down at this place at Weybridge in thick fog, very dark, and after a job as a stressman. And I'd been paid five quid a week at this particular moment, and I said, I'm not coming down in the woods of this part of the world for less than five guineas. And he said, oh, I couldn't possibly pay you five guineas as a stressman. But maybe in two months' time there'll be some vacancies as a draftsman. So I stuck out with that determination of mine that is now getting fairly well known, and I got me five guineas as a draftsman. So I turned up at Weybridge, and it was very interesting. I worked for a fellow named Stannard, who was absolute solid gold. The old group leader of the old type, absolute wizard of a chap. And he said, I'd better take you around this place so that you don't get lost. Now, it was interesting because I didn't see that aeroplane looking like that. And that is a thing called a Viastra. And although I was going to get used as the years went by to uh, things being scrapped, the first thing that I saw at Vickers's at Weybridge was a perfectly new aeroplane. And the Viastra was a very versatile aeroplane. You could have two engines or three or one or none. They were offered in a variety of <laughs> roles. And here was a perfectly new aeroplane with a very large man who I afterwards recognized as Archie Knight, works manager, with an enormous sledgehammer breaking it up to bits. And I said, I thought one of the objects of this place was to make aeroplanes. And they looked at me all pitying-like and uh, I then knew that there was more in aviation than just making aeroplanes. Prince of Wales had one of those, actually, for a bit. There weren't many of them. I dare say, like all other civil aeroplanes, they lost quite a lot of money on it. First aeroplane I ever worked on was this contraption. This is a thing called the G431 biplane. And I altered a bit down there that somebody else thought they got right. And uh, <laughs> the interesting thing to me about that, and the, the, really the only reason that I've shown it, is that uh, there was a fellow named Sir Robert McLean who ran uh, Vickers Aviation in those days. He was quite a chap. And uh, the point I want to bring out, and I'm going to bring it out once or twice, is the ability that the chaps who ran the companies in those days, the ability that they had and the courage that they had in really doing things um, the way they thought they ought to be done and the fact that they got away with it. This is, this is really the interesting thing. Now, this was uh, a biplane built to uh, an Air Ministry specification, G431. It made its first flight in 1934. Um, and the Air Ministry, after it had been through uh, Bosque and uh, Martlesham, oh boy, I nearly slipped there, after it had been through Martlesham, decided to order 150. Now, taken by and large, if somebody comes along with an order of 150, you go and grab it with both hands and you don't argue. But not old Bob McLean, 
Um, Vickers decided that this was too old-fashioned, that it really needed a monoplane to be built to the same general specification, and that was done in Barnes Wallace's geodetics. And I might say the cost of that prototype was 30,000 quid, which shows how things have changed. And the company built that prototype off their own bat, and that was the first, first flight that I ever saw of a prototype, bright red with a dope on it. They didn't stop to put any fancy camouflage on. It was bright red with a dope on it. And then you see, although the company had an order for 150 of those, the Air Ministry received a letter from Sir Robert McLean saying, I suggest to you that it might be better to reduce these orders in numbers and in their place go into the production of the monoplane as soon as tooling up can be completed. Meantime, and until you can decide whether we shall be allowed to switch over from the biplane to the monoplane, I do not wish to proceed with work on the biplane because in my view it is not a modern machine. Now, you know, I can't really see anybody giving up 150 aeroplanes <laughs> now, but they were able to do it, and of course they got away with it. They were able to do it because the costs were relatively low, and there were a lot of those built which, of course, subsequently became the old Wellesley, which was Barnes Wallace's first geodetic aeroplane. Well, I, of course, worked under two pretty remarkable people in the form of Barnes Wallace and Rex Pearson. It's not given to most mortals to have to uh, deal with those two at the same time. They really were most tremendous chaps. Quite different, totally different. Absolutely dedicated to what they were doing. Methods and approaches quite different. But both great men, it's an overworked word, but both great men, and I was jolly lucky uh, to, to work with a pair of them. We got this off our plate, and then uh, there was a Dodge called the B932 uh, came into being, and this was the prototype, B932, and what interests me is that, because this group that I was stuck on was um, dealt with back ends, so we had plenty of opportunity to do things more than once. <laughs> and uh, when the time came to brace ourselves up to do this, I said, what did it want to look like? And the science in those days was pretty advanced. Rex Pearson said, go and see Frank Richards. And he was 50% of the project office at Weybridge then. Uh, the Strand Rail is all right on the rudder. Old Mount Summers is very pleased with the Strand Rail. So we went and saw Frank Richards. He got a three-view GA that was about the size of a picture postcard. We got out a piece of tracing paper, traced over that, and if you look at the picture of the Strand Rail, you'll find it's exactly like that. Mind you, it wasn't right. <laughs> but then you can't, you can't have everything. Well, of course, the Wellington, that uh, that was the beginnings of, was very different from that. I mean, we'd learned in those days that you never kept the thing the same if you got half a chance of changing it. <laughs> That's a hurricane, that is the hurricane prototype, um, done by Sidney Cam, one of the greatest chaps that ever was. Oh, he was terrific, old Sidney. I could spend all the night talking about him, but I bet I hadn't. Absolutely wonderful bloke, dedicated, straight, honest, direct. He'd got the artistry of designing things simple. Any nut can design anything complicated. He could design it simple. 
like Sir James Martin, he can design them simple. And it's a genius that can design things simple. Sydney could. That was the hurricane. That was the Spitfire. And incidentally, rather than just have slides of photographs, I thought it might take your mind off what I was saying if I produce slides of paintings every now and again. And this is one of David Shepard's early efforts. Now, the great thing about the hurricane and the Spitfire, the point I wanted to bring out, was that in the same vein that McLean said he wasn't going to build the biplanes, the chaps who were responsible for the companies and these two aeroplanes virtually said the same thing, that the specification of the F-730, at which one or two boss shots of not very good prototypes, in fact, had been built, the two, two companies came to the conclusion that this was all much too serious, that something had to be done about it, um, and that this specification in its own right couldn't go on. And there's a rather pithy uh, note of Maclean, and I know the same thing went on in, uh, in Hawkins, where he uh, said that uh, after unfruitful discussions with the Air Ministry, my opposite number in Rolls-Royce, the late A.F. Sidgreaves and I, decided that the two companies together should themselves finance the building of such an, such an aircraft. The Air Ministry was informed of this decision, and I must say I'm in fear and trembling of going on in, in the presence of CAS, but I'll go on. The Air Ministry was informed of this decision and were told that in no circumstances would any technical member of the Air Ministry be consulted or allowed to interfere with the design of it. <laughs> well, I need hardly say that it didn't go on as a private venture, that a contract was produced, that it was all decently wrapped up in an official document, and the hurricane and the spitfire emerged therefrom, um, and the two of them together, if I remember rightly, added up to about 40,000 aeroplanes, and the right old tangle we would have been in without them. But the performance standards that came out of those two aeroplanes, due to Cam and Mitchell being backed up by their managements in the way that they were. The performance standards that came out that were crucial were a good deal higher, a lot higher than the performance standards being called for in F-730. Now, you could do that in those days because they were relatively cheap um, and, you know, there, there was a sort of a rapport between the industry and, and the other people where they listened and took notice without having to do it 500 times and write 300 weights of paper. There was another thing too that I got involved in when we began to get uh, in the piping days of war and I think the only thing I want to talk about on this, apart from the fact I think it's quite a nice painting by Cuneo, this, though, most of you will know, but those who don't, that's a big magnetic ring in there, there's a coil inside there, hung under a Wellington with a Ford engine and a generator in there, you whistle the current around the coil, that produced a magnetic field, the magnetic mine that was underneath went off with a kadonk. That's a picture of Bruin Purvis and Cotton uh, setting off the first one down in the Thames estuary, and they, as you see, they virtually blew their tail off at the same time. That was roughly speaking because they were doing what they were told not to do, which was to fly very low, and the bomb, the, the mine was on a hummock, and they got an instant DFC for that and deserved it. Now, 
That wasn't the reason I put it up. The reason I put it up was that I got stuck with the job of doing a fair amount of the work in the drawing office, and then I got shot into the factory to get the thing put together. And uh, old Winston Churchill was uh, first sea lord at the time, first lord of the Admiralty. I never know one from the other. He was the political head of the Admiralty, first lord of the Admiralty. And I had to send a set of photographs up every night to show what we'd done during the day. Now, blimey, you know, most of the fellas now, you'd need to send them up every three months to be able to see anything <laughs> that happened in between. But in the piping days of 1939, that was what we did. Then, of course, there were all sorts of strange things went on during the war, and I don't propose going into that. Um, I was running, or alleged to be running, an experimental shop, and I did some very peculiar things. Most of them didn't come to much. As a leg break bowler, I helped old Barnes Wallace get the rotation of his mind bombs the right way. He would argue about the fact that you put topspin on. Well, it is well known to everybody that if you just wet your fingers and put it across the seam of the ball and go like that and put backspin on, it will skid much more freely. If you put topspin on, it will turn over and go in. Well, we succeeded in the end. And when he wrote his first report, I was elevated to the prestige of a county cricketer of his acquaintance, and it was worth it for that. <laughs> well, then after the piping days, of, after the war and peace broke out, this was the old Viking, which was alleged to be an interim aeroplane that wouldn't last very long, and people are still using them, so that, you know, the old adjective, there's nothing so permanent as a temporary job. We should have been warned about that because we lost a million pounds on that and that really should have shown us the future of our civil aeroplane. Mind you, we sold a great bulk of them for 36,000 pounds all in, including the lavatories, the radio, the engines and the propellers. And the ones that we sold for 56,000 we made a decent profit on. I should add that the letters and varsities that came out of that um, they rather tended to redress the balance. Something had to. Then you see, the next one was a... That's one of Shepard's early efforts. That's a Viscount. Interesting aeroplane in its way. Um, you know, six months before the first flight of that, that was in December 47, it was cancelled because... Um, and it's odd the way history repeats itself. It was cancelled because it used too much fuel, having a propeller turbine engine, and the operating costs were going to be too high, and it was ahead of its time. And uh, some piston engine aeroplanes were bought with the money. But um, Sir Alec Corriton at that time was doing the head job in uh, the Ministry of whatever it was then, and it would have been supply. And he had plenty of courage. And I worked for a chap named Sir Hugh Kilner, who's got plenty of courage too. And the three of us got together one day and we cooked up a fairly scurrilous means whereby the Viscount prototypes were kept going in aid of power control for the Valiant and all that. And then Peter Mayfield came to BEA as uh, Shelto Douglas's uh, executive assistant. Uh, he was, Shelto was the chairman. And Peter was absolutely determined that this thing was going to be built. So it got, um, 
It got reprieved and we built quite a lot of them. One way and another. But it was interesting, you see, it was cancelled and it's better than this. Absolutely stone dead. And if it hadn't been for determination and courage and the fact that the guy had got the power, because when we reached agreement with Sir Alec Corriton that this was the thing to do, he then sent for the head administrator and asked him to get the contract drawn up. Things have changed, didn't they? Now the next one, you see, is an uh, interesting one. I'm, well, Valiant, that's the prototype, Valiant. I'm convinced it was the hardest aeroplane of Ireland did, far and away. I think the thing that interests me about that is that when you look at the estimates of drawing off his time now to change the hat racks or get a different colour paint on the lavatory drawer or something, that first prototype was done in under half a million, the figures are engraved on my chest, 486,000 drawing office hours for the first flight of the prototype. And that was the nicest job we ever did, that one. Given no mercy, told we couldn't fiddle about with any half-scale models that had got to be got right first time, and it was the only means by which atomic bombs were carried about. It did the our atomic bomb tests out in the Pacific. Soldiers on. Trouble was the chap wore it out by flying it around low down, whereas we'd intended it to be high enough. Now this is full of morals. This is Stobart's painting of a vanguard. This is full of morals. I'll only point out one or two. It was a 400 mile an hour propeller turbine at the time when we ordered them doing a jet. It was in a head-on conflict with the Electra. It ought to have been an extension of the Viscount. It never ought to have been a new aeroplane. And we lost our shirt on it. It's never any good doing something that is a bit behind or level with the state of the art, merely because the operating costs are low. So it's very cheap. The seat markup on this thing is very cheap. The only people to whom it wasn't cheap were those of us who made it. I think it cost us 16 million pounds. Another model, the next one. Now that only has to be a model because the aeroplane was never finished. It was within six months of being finished. It had 3,200 square feet of wing. The prototype was ordered. Six aeroplanes were ordered for transport command. It was capable of doing a non-stop crossing of the Atlantic. And in 1955 it got its throat cut for fairly political reasons. But I think the lesson that has to be drawn from this one is the eternal lesson in this business about um, even though the truth comes out, more often than not, it comes out too late. In 1955, in November, the uh, minister responsible said, and these are extracts from Hansard, that the British Overseas Airways Corporation had made it clear that its requirements for the early 1960s were already met by the aircraft it had on order. And then the next statement was that BOAC was satisfied that it could hold its own commercially on the North Atlantic route well into the 1960s with the Comet 4 on the long range Britannia. Within um, a year of that, after which the prototype 
in a, in a very advanced state had been destroyed and the jigs had been pulled up, I was asked whether it would be possible to reactivate it. And I made the fairly obvious answer. And then the next thing, and this really rubbed the salt in, the minister responsible then said that BOAC were being given permission to buy 15707. And he added, in order that the corporation may hold their competitive position on the North Atlantic route from 1959 to the 1960s, at that time no suitable new British aeroplane can be available for that purpose and the purchase is an exceptional measure to bridge the gap. I wasn't to know it, but we've sort of been seeing that kind of a gap bridged a bit more than once ever since. Now the truth came out too late. Those of us who were involved in it thought we knew the truth, but it came out too late, like it did in that one. That painting, by the way, was by a fellow named Stobart. Don't go into who the aeroplane was by. But that uh, would have been all right, given a chance. And the TSR2 was another one. And, uh, well, I'm not also going to go into the long rigmarole with the TSR2 and the F111s, which finally didn't appear either. Now, that's a fairly dismal tale, some of it, and deliberately so. Because it was that business of unilateral stopping and what you knew was going to be the truth in your heart, not being given a chance to operate because it was going to be there too late for anything to be done. That produced some of the heartbreaks that you, Mr. President, have referred to. But if you're in this game, you've got to be able to cope with that situation. As old Harry Truman said, and it was he that said it first, and not Albert Wilson, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Now, message of hope. These were all vulnerable because they were uninational programs. They were at the mercy of short-term political situations. This is a long-term business and politics is short-term. Proof of that, you want to have a look at what's going on in the political scene at the present time. Now, this was all a bit dreary, all this uninational racket. And a message of hope, which I promised you, is that now that we've got into these European programs, which as you said, Mr. President, that uh, I'm not a complete stranger to. The scene changed a bit. We showed that uh, you could do these joint programs, and this is about the hardest technical job that anybody has done outside the Apollo space program. And we argued like hell with our friends and relations in France over this, but we got it to work in the end. And... Uh, you got a good Frenchman and boy, you solid gold, and I had a good one for over four years on that, André Puget. He was a wonderful chap. Straight as a die, understood the British, knew that if any, anybody on either side of the channel was perfidious, it was least likely to be the British than anybody else. Terrific fellow. Interesting thing today, we flew the first production Concorde for the first flight today, out of Toulouse. And the old, uh, my, so we got five of them now. And my gallant uh, Gallic friends, who never fiddled about with these things, obviously took the view that if it was a supersonic aeroplane, it was. 
And they flew for quite a long time, and they got up to Mark 1.57. It's interesting, I'd hoped that my old friend Mr. Mack was going to be here, because this is always the moment when I like to recount that we've done 1,033 flights with the Concords now. It's totaled 2,155 hours, of which 633 have been supersonic, and that's exactly that much more than any American one has done. <laughs> and uh, it's even more to the point than that. They have, in fact, already spent more getting nothing than the British will have spent by the time the Concorde goes into service. Now think on that. They have spent more on their supersonic transport program getting nothing than we would have spent by the time it goes into service. That's interesting. That showed that you could do it. There's a Jaguar. Jolly interesting, you know, those old aeroplanes that I showed you, those very old-fashioned bombers that I showed you a little while ago, they all had the bombs put inside because they said they cause drag if you put them on the outside. <laughs> and, uh, well, great thing about the Jaguar is it gives us a chance to build 400 aeroplanes, which is what the two countries um, planned on. gives us the opportunity to sell them off the thin end of the learning curve instead of off the thick end. And on military aeroplanes, the biggest thing about the collaborative program is the fact that it gives us a big starting order. That's always been the Achilles heel of single, uh, single nation industries and with these collaborative programs it's removed. The time scale on this has been as good I think as any single national aeroplane and I think the device that we've got at the end of it is a pretty usable bit of machinery. The MRCA is, uh, that's what they call artist license. But it's got variable geometry and other things, two seats. Does about eight different jobs. First prototype is being screwed together now and should uh, fly pretty early in the new year. The current plan is for something like 800 of those. Now, they're all important. They're important in their own right, but they're important for another reason. They, uh, these collaborative programs are a devil of a job to start, and when you get stuck with one, um, as uh, I've been stuck, in which you're convinced that there's a job to do, but one of your partners, for some reason or another, can't join you, and you have to abandon it, even though you want to do it on your own. That's maddening. But once you get it going, and once you get all these people involved in it, boy, they're a hell of a job to stop, too. And uh, looking back on that other stream of misery, and I could have produced a lot more, you know, Blue Water, the 1154, 681, I could produce a lot more. They were all at the mercy of a single country's temporary situation. These, you've got to get everybody in the mood to start it, you've got to get everybody in the mood to stop it. Um, I can't imagine why I've got the next one in where it is, except that uh, I've got to pay some credence to the guided weaponeers. That's a swing fire going off out of a ferret. 
And a ferret isn't an ordinary ferret that you put down after rabbits. It's a military thingamy. It's a tracked vehicle, or it's a vehicle it may not even be tracked, but it's a military vehicle. The weaponeers haven't done all that much on collaboration, but they're fairly safe because the thing that the weaponeers have in this uh, range are some fairly cheap and cheerful devices that uh, are not so vulnerable to large chops because they're not so expensive. So we moved into an area away from the vulnerability of cancellations because the big programs are mainly collaborative and the small programs like that are uh, in fairly good shape anyway because they're not so expensive and not so vulnerable. Now I'm going to have a what I hope will prove to be a moderately quick uh, gander at one or two other things other than just looking at aeroplanes. And I won't, I will try not to spend too much time on these because uh, they're all a bit strange. I couldn't resist. That's the rudder that I was going on about a little while ago as the first job that I had to do. And uh, my great team that I had to do that were a couple of young characters out of the Vickers Academy, Spud Bohr and Ernie Marshall, who were out there somewhere. And between us, we uh, managed to get... Mind you, we had to do it several times before it was right. But I couldn't resist um, getting a Concorde put alongside it. Now, one of the funny things is that, although that cost a lot more to do, it was right. Uh, now, there's a moral in there. I'm absolutely certain you can dig it out for yourself. Now, what this is, is designed man-hours per pound of empty weight up to the first flight. There you've got it. Fighters, bombers, transports, they all fit reasonably on a curve against time. What is interesting, I think, that's the North American bomber B-1, there's a Jaguar, there's a Lightning. You see, the Concorde is up amongst the supersonic bombers. And I've always maintained that one of the reasons that it cost so much and was such a job to do, and perhaps more important, a job to estimate, was that there never was a long-range supersonic bomber on which we could build our experience. We had to straddle the gap, if you like, between VC-10s and Lightnings. There was the performance, and there was a civil aeroplane with a size. It's quite interesting, I think, that it lies up there. Nothing we can do about it, but I just thought you'd like to know. There's another thing that there's nothing that you can do about. It rings my withers. When I first went into it in 1935, there was the drawing office. Now, these are just percentages. Don't think that in 1973 there's the same total number of people that there was in 1935, because it jolly well isn't. But the design team was made up with that number of draftsmen and those stressmen and the labs and all the supporting bods. In 1950 the rot had set in, and the old draftsmen were only that much, and all the other guys were that. And in 1973 there's a poor perishing draftsman who at the end of the day have to carry it about on their back, absolutely flattened by all this lot sitting on top of them. And in 1935, the old drawing office at Weybridge, there were a hundred of us. And Sidney Cam, I remember, reckoned you could never do with more than a hundred. I think he did the hurricane on 71. 
There again, the only thing I've got to say is that these lads do seem to get it a bit nearer right than we used to do back there. Well, so they should. There's such a head of a lot of them. And look at all this lot sitting on top. I told you this was going to be a very serious... Ah, now. This is old men. The first lecture that I ever gave to this great society was uh, in 1948. I think it was in November, actually. 1948, so it was 25 years ago. And it followed fairly closely on one that Peter Macefield had done. And this was largely a crib of his... Uh, but this is the actual slide before your very eyes that I did in 1948. And um, it was entitled Problems in the Development of a New Aeroplane. And I really thought in 1948 that I knew about the problems. Huh, good job I didn't. This is the cost in pounds up here, and it's a bit, print's a bit small because we hadn't learnt then that you want to put big print on slides for people to be able to see what you're talking about. This was the development cost against gross weight. And this was development cost against pounds of gross weight. And I went on, you see, and there's 35 pounds per pound, pounds sterling per pound, and there's 30 pounds sterling per pound. And I went on about the fact that this was very extravagant, that 30 pounds per pound was very extravagant, and we ought to do a lot better. And these blobs on here, that was the Dove. There was an Apollo in there. There was the Viscount in there. Um, the top one was a Constellation, the bottom one was the Dove, the blobs in between were the Viscount and the Convair 240 and the Apollo and the Ambassador. Um, one of the interesting things, these are, let me be clear what these are, these are just design and manufacture of the prototype for the first flight, there's no fancy production tooling or education in that, and the actual development cost of the Viscount was 1.17 million pounds, 1.17. Not a thousand and seventeen, 1.17. And it was very interesting then, and that was in 1948. And I'll tell you something that'll make you very sad. 3.67 of today's pounds, no, 3.76 of today's pounds make up a pound in 1948. That's a worry, isn't it? Now I'm going to show you some more about that in a minute, so don't think you're going to be disappointed. I virtually can't understand this, and if I really get in the muddle, I'm going to get Spud Bora to come and explain it. What this really is, is an attempt at relating that previous slide to some of the modern-day facts of life. There's millions of pounds, and they've all been taken down into 1948 pounds. Now, that line up there was my 30 to 35 pounds that I had on that other curve. Um, there's 25 pounds per pound, and what really astonished me was that these later aeroplanes, which I would have thought would have been absolutely way out. You see, there are those two at 25, and I was grizzling at this time that 30 was too high. The 111 being a bit of a denser aeroplane, and remember these are pounds of gross weight, not pounds of empty weight, was above it at about 40 odd. Then we decided to put the Concorde in, so that obviously meant we got to scale the thing up by 10, so that I wasn't sitting up on the roof putting the Concorde mark in. And there's the 25 pounds per pound line. Now we've got up to 110 pounds per pound when we get onto 
new wide-bodied jobs, and there's the old 111 down there, as I said, at 45. You see, there's a VC-10, round about 30 sort of thing. And the old Concorde sweeps up there at 300. Now, what I think we're trying to say about this is if you get much dearer than 300, um, you come round and tend to go straight up. And uh, <laughs> that's, that's apt to be troublesome to everybody. But it hasn't all been a waste of time. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this one, but this is a slide, I think, that is worth pointing out. Over the years, these the percentage of people who are boarded. They're not individual bodies. It means the same chaps very likely been on 20 times. But as the years have gone by, you see, the percentage carried by British Airlines of the UK population has gone up from jolly nearly nothing up to, what, 27, 28%. Now, by one means and another, and the efficiency of the aeroplane has had a lot to do with it, a chap way back in 1950, on a week's wages, could only go 200 miles worth of holiday, and now he can go 800. And in the 25 years sort of thing between there and there, the overall efficiency of aeroplane, the people running the airlines and all the rest of it, have enabled a chap, if he wants to spend his week's wages on flying somewhere, boy, if he'd done as much flying as I've done this year, that's the last thing that he'd want to do with it. But if he did, he can go four times as much because we've all been pretty smart between us. It's nice to think that that you've done something for somebody somewhere. One of the maddening things about losing money on civil aeroplanes is that more often than not the airlines lose money when they got them. So what have you done it for? <laughs> and that, that's probably the answer. That guy has reaped the benefit of two lots of people losing money. <laughs> now it's a good thing to have an aircraft industry. A very good thing. And a big G and a big T. You get yourself defended two ways if you've got an aircraft industry. You resist marauders, as we did in uh, the last war, and the one before it. And you know, this Lend-Lease caper in the last war was jolly acceptable. But I reckon that old Mitchell and Cam were a lot more acceptable, in actual fact. What this shows is the second line of defence. And I don't really want to go on about the balance of payments at the moment because my microphone will drop off again, I expect. But, <laughs> but all that I can say about this is that um, that knocks the inflation out of it, if you like. They're at constant 1972 prices, that top line. This is what's going to happen as of 1973. We're going over 500 millions. They're the United Kingdom Aerospace Exports. And remember, with a very high conversion ratio, the imports that you have to buy to produce that amount of export is pretty small. Depends how you do the arithmetic. It lies between 7 and 12% according to who does it. It's a job to do it. It's a hand of a job. It used to be called fun exporting. But it's been done, and it's been done because some chaps have uh, got it right. And the chap who designed the next aeroplane got it right. Old Sydney Cam's Harrier. Magnificent device. I said, look, Sydney, I don't understand how these chaps who've uh, done this rival aeroplane to yours with all these multi-engines in and the twirling jets in order to control it, it was done up at shorts with 
scrape battery of lifting engines. They've got a most sophisticated control system, and I said, here are you with this thing as simple as it can be, and Stanley Hooker knows what I'm talking about. I said, I don't understand how you've managed to achieve the same result so simple. Oh, boy, he said, Sidney. As far as I'm concerned, boy, it's got to be simple. Can't understand it myself if it isn't. <laughs> and uh, that's made a great contribution to our exports in the way that Sydney Cam has made a great contribution to the British way of life and its independence. And here's, uh, there's the old Trident. Uh, they've now gone and whopped another lot um, into China, and God bless them. Interesting situation, civil aeroplanes, the way you get these second winds, the, the Boeing 727. Uh, the production was very slow there, great difficulty. All of a sudden, great upsurge, selling them in hundreds. Never give up, that's the answer. And God bless Hawkers for the Harrier and the Triton. What's this? Ah, oh, yes, this is a painting by a fellow named Sturge, it's still a 111. It's, uh, it's interesting. It's helped a bit towards that balance of payments thing. Now, the way really to do it is in the next one. That's old Jefferson's rapier. That thing going out there like Elijah and the pillar of fire. This is really the way to get some exports because, you see, lots of people still want to be defended. And they can afford these, and you can really say that this is defense. You can't shoot anybody with that except somebody who's trying to attack you. So it's all proper and decent. Highly profitable. And never, never ever fall into the trap. Any young fellows here who are going to become big wheels in this business, never fall into the trap of just concentrating on little devices like that, or little simple aeroplanes, uh, just because they're easy to make money and they've got no risk in. You see, if you don't go on doing difficult things that stretch you out and uh, produce all the, all, all the brains fit the bust, you just become a second-class outfit. It's all right making profits on little simple things. But if somebody in the country isn't doing big advanced things and at the same time making profits on little things, you see, all that you'll be is a little bit of a garage that can only make little things. So you young fellows that have the fate of the nation in your hand, never be seduced into just doing little things because you can make profits. You do big complicated things and make money on those and then do little things and make a lot more money on those. Now, you, you take my advice. It's dead right. And then you might say, well, what's the good of making anything? Because nobody wants it. Well, this is intended to prove that somebody does. And you see, all my life now, and I've gone on for a long time, there's always been crises and disasters of one sort and another. Something was always happening. You always get humps and bumps and hiccups and flats. But there you've got... There you've got airline traffic growth since 1945. Jolly interesting. You see, the white one is international, that one is domestic, and that's the two added together. Um, now, that looked as though it was going to roll itself over, and you could have done a bit of arithmetic around this time, and Professor Collar and I got very profound on logistic curves at one stage that showed that there were various constraints on the domestic traffic, like congestion at airports and fast trains and motorways and all that, that maybe was going to roll that over. Well, that unrolled it. 
I would think that, um, you see, the amount of fuel that the airlines use, if that's what you're thinking about, is only 2.5% of the total. Now, the object of this, this is the band of speed with time. There's how quick you've been in miles an hour. Here's time. These are the various aeroplanes. What I thought was amusing about that, you see, there is a spread there, entry into service 1958 of the 707-120 there, B747 entry into service up here. You've got like about 10 or 12, 12 years between those two. It'll be about 20 years between that one and a bigger Concorde or bigger something out there. Which means that there won't be anything more advanced than Concorde technology this century. And you young fellows want to hang on to that and you want to stop worrying about suborbital passenger aeroplanes. <laughs> now another thing to look at on uh, that previous slide, and leave it, leave it like it is because I can do without it. That previous slide had a couple of interesting points on it, I think. With the, the, between 1956 and 1972, the average annual growth was 12.4%. Of that, the uh, North Atlantic was 16.9%, and Europe to Australia was 18%. Now, what that really means is that of the total of 12.4, there was an entirely disproportionate amount of growth on the long-haul part of the business. And that may be what you were seeing when the domestic was beginning to tumble over. The other thing that I find depressing, that this will put it all right, is that there are 20 times more people across the Atlantic each year than go from England to Australia. And I don't blame the people who don't go from England to Australia about that, because having recently done it, it can only be described as an ordeal. That's uh, just an eyeful to remind you what's happened over the years. 60 hours in 1935, down through the string of aeroplanes to the 747 in 7.5 or something, and then uh, hopefully down here in 3.5, all pretty orderly. Nice smooth curve, this one dropping out underneath. Australia's a bit different, you have to put it on in days. Days, you see, yeah, up there, and then down here. And then again, this magical moment when this device comes into being, you see. L747 still takes, what, 28 hours or something? And that's going to take 13. Now, you look at the tail end of the two together, and I think this is as a moral. I'm prepared to draw a moral. Most people wouldn't agree with it, but not to worry. That's ours. This is the tail end of the curve for the North Atlantic, and that's the tail end of the curve for Australia. That's what you do now in the 747. That's what you will get with the 747 SP with only one stop. And it takes you as long as it took you to cross the Atlantic in about 1945. I never found anybody very happy with that. And I have a strong suspicion that a lot of people will be fairly prepared to settle for that. And you've got to admit, I've been jolly strongly disciplined so far. I haven't talked about the Concorde at all except for about three minutes, and I, I think it was at least reasonable that I should, uh, I should do that.
So we've got a bit of a picture now of what we might be going to do and, and why. The future. There's the North Atlantic again. This is in days this time. What you do with the ship. Then these Wright brother fellows appeared on the scene here. And there was the old Vickers beam. He did its crossing there. So air, including an airship, then brought this time down like that. And you know, there are all sorts of reasons. And that curve that I showed you, shooting up to the Concorde with its 1948 pounds sterling per pound is one of the reasons. There are all sorts of reasons why that line is going to go on and on and on for a very long time. By which I mean that the future on long-range aeroplanes is going to be based on Concorde-type technology or TU-144 technology. And I have very little doubt that in the fullness of time there will be an arrangement whereby the Americans build their own aeroplane based on Concorde technology. Now, I'm going to do a very quick scuttle now through the rest of it. That's space. That's the Intelsat 4, which we did in collaboration with the Hughes Aircraft Company of the United States. There's a big future in Europe for space programs, satellite programs in particular in Europe, if we use our nuts and don't get too extravagant about it. There's one end of it all, and down the bottom is the other end. And I think I'm going to try now, pretty quickly, to uh, draw a few of the bits together that I've been going on about. First of all, all those cancellations and the grief and pain that went with it have largely been alleviated by the collaborative programs. And they're difficult, but they can be made to work. The military situation on collaborative programs is good-looking, with one exception, which I'll come to in a minute. It has a great advantage of a much larger starting market, <coughs> which gets us out in the export areas with a much cheaper aeroplane. Civil side in Europe is nothing like as good. The great majority of civil aeroplanes in the continent of Europe are American, and I have said it before and I'll say it again, I have found it a lot easier to sell British aeroplanes into the United States domestic airlines than I have found it to sell into the continental airlines of Europe. And I say continental because BOAC and BEA have been all right, that selling into the continent of Europe has been one hell of a job. And if Europe is going to get itself an indigenous civil aircraft industry, then the governments of Europe have to do something about it. And that doesn't mean that they're going to be made captive markets. It means that we have to be given the same opportunity to sell the European airlines, European aeroplanes, that the American airlines are sold American aeroplanes. Now, I think on the French thing, um, I've said this before and I will say it again, these collaborative programs and a united Europe and all that is a lot of nonsense. When the chap that you're collaborating with on a particular project goes out to sell his own aeroplane first, and when he's failed to sell his own aeroplane, he will join you in selling the one 
that you are doing jointly together, and of course I refer to the Jaguar. And if this is the way to produce a united Europe, then uh, the sooner we stop it, the better. On the other hand, if this is the way in which the French are going to operate on these programs, then the British have to do the same. And we have to be quite clear that we have the biggest and best aircraft industry outside the United States and Russia. We are the only one capable of doing everything across the board outside those two countries, and by golly, we've got to stay like it. Collaborative programs or not, we have preserved the capability to do it ourselves, and we've got to stay with that capability. And uh, the trouble, as uh, Peter Macefield's uncle once said, uh, the poet Lorette, you can get the English to do anything if you put it to them the right way. The trouble with the English is they try all the wrong ways first. But on the other hand, Lord Chesterfield, who lived uh, at the end of the 17th century, he said that silly sanguine notion, which is firmly entertained here, that one Englishman can beat three Frenchmen, encourages and has sometimes enabled one Englishman, in reality, to beat two. <laughs> now these days we can't operate like Sir Robert McLean and uh, Sid Greaves operated and tell the governments that when they want to order 150 aeroplanes we want no truck with it. The system isn't like that any longer. You can't get away with it. But the system to a large extent decides what you're going to get. And uh, some of us had hoped very much that the famous Fulton Report, which now, let me remind you, is five and a half years old, was going, going to redress the balance in that we were going to get engineers and scientists in the high places in the civil service. It was very outspoken about this. It left no uh, doubts about the fact that it should be done. It was very outspoken. It said it is that the civil service is still too much based on the philosophy of the amateur. And it went to a lot of trouble. Now, if you read the leading article in today's issue of Flight, and there's no need for me to go on, you will find that this hasn't happened. Unfortunately, this situation happens in France. The products of L'Ecole Polytechnique are found everywhere in the French scheme of things, in the armed forces, in business, in the government service, everywhere. And I'm not suggesting that we should be run by engineers. God help us, I've been surrounded by my mates for too long to want to do that. And I know that there is a great deal to be said for the, the upper hierarchy, having a broad, the broad approach which the classical scholar has got. And I would never question the integrity or the intelligence or the capability of the British Civil Service. But it's absolute nuts uh, to try to arrive at the sort of decisions that they're having to arrive at these days with the density of, of people in the top ranks that have had the disciplines of an engineering and scientific education as low as it is. Fulton saw it and said so, and virtually speaking, there's been very little done about it. You might find one chap here and there. Jim Hamilton was in DTI and is no longer there. And I am saying, as the leading article in Flight Today is saying, that five and a half years is too long, something ought to have been done about it. Now, as far as ministers are concerned, like the bloke in the gondoliers, it's a privilege and pleasure which I treasure beyond measure to run on little errands for the ministers of state. Um, 
trouble is that you have to run on so many errands for so many different ministers and they don't always go in the same direction that you're apt to get yourself a bit caught up. But we average one every 18 months. Every now and again it's only been every 12 months. If you can keep them for two years, they begin to know a bit of what's going on. And what I would say to the younger chaps who are going to come on and run the business, never allow yourselves to be seduced into a situation where a minister who is a minister for a short time damages a great business on which the nation may depend, on which lots of people will depend. It's a lot more difficult. It's a lot easier to do a bit of damage in a short time if you're going to be gone soon after than it is to keep it going for a long time if you're going to be there and responsible for it for a long time. So you young fellows who are getting into that act, just you bear that in mind. They're not there forever, and you're going to be there for a long time. Big advance in recent times has been the setting up of the procurement executive in the Ministry of Defence. In my early days it was terrible. The only process by which I could legally talk to real airmen was uh, with somebody from the Ministry of Supply or the Ministry of Aviation or whatever it is present. Nowadays it's legal that you can go and talk to the chaps who are actually going to fly and use the aeroplanes and have the responsibility for it. It's a big improvement. I think there is now time for a real hard think about another move because I don't believe it's right the way the setup is at the moment for DTI to have the responsibility for the ministry and yet really only to have policy decisions on some of the civil aeroplanes. I'm not at all sure that the time hasn't come when the whole lot ought to be put into one ball of wax and the whole kabush in some way put into the Ministry of Defence. I know that this place is a great a burden on the uh, minister to, to say that he's got to allocate money to civil aeroplanes when he's being pressed to uh, reduce it on defence. But it's inconsistent at the moment with the responsibility for the industry being in one ministry and the real stuff on which we are depending for our living uh, being in another one. And uh, for my money, the time has now come to put it right. Now, there's a few bits of advice here and there which uh, we'll probably get uh, listened to with a customary abandon. That is to say, nobody will take any notice of it at all. But you see, the one thing you must never do is to take notice of great pontifications by chaps who, you see, Lord Kelvin in 1896 said, I have not the smallest molecule of faith in aerial navigation other than ballooning. And the Secretary of State for War in 1910, he said, we do not consider that aeroplanes will be of any possible use for war purposes. And then another guy down here, as recently as 35, said that jet propulsion couldn't be a serious competitor for all this. Now, you know, if they'd lived this day and age, they would either have been uh, permanent pundits on the telly, or they'd have worked for the Observer. <laughs> uh, and at the, finally, at the risk of being called jingoistic, and I don't care if I am, um, you know, this is a country that uh, has seen the work of... Uh, and the dedication of men like uh, Admiral Nelson, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, the Lord Portal, 
one of the greatest hunters that ever walked. We, at the moment, look as though we're in a bit of a muddle with all this oil thing. But the Lord, you know, for some reason, it is often difficult to understand, there's a soft spot for the old British, because here we are in a great tangle, and there, just off the shore, is great puddles of oil and gas. And there's a period of time through which we have to go. Now, what's that period of time to us, lot? We've been at it for thousands of years. We've got through two wars in my lifetime. These things will be got through. And the thing that we must always remember is that when it comes to brains and know-how and ingenuity and decentness and preparedness to stick to a deal when we go into one, there really isn't anybody that can pair with us. And Mr. President, it's been a great pleasure to, to deliver this uh, lecture tonight. I've been fond of this old society and the people in it um, for a great many years. I've, uh, I've been in this aviation racket for a long time, uh, maybe sometimes I think too long. It's been hard and tough. Prototypes crash and people get killed and you get disappointments. But nevertheless, on you go. And as long as uh, you've got somebody like I've had in the form of my missus who's down there to hold you up while you're going and all your friends that you've got round you, it's all worth it. And if I've done anything tonight that might uh, give anybody a glimmer of thought about what they're going to do from now on, I'm more than rewarded and I'm sorry I've been so long. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, Sir George has said that it was a pleasure for us, for, for him to give us the lecture tonight, but it has been an even greater pleasure for us to listen to it. I think that he has given us this wide sweep of his many, many years of experience, and we're very grateful. If I might just make one comment that our society development program will include doing something about the microphone. <laughs> I would now like to ask Professor Nicholas J. Hoff, fellow of the Society, to propose the vote of thanks. Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, the older ones among you may remember that 20 years ago I had the great honor of delivering the what was then called the Wilbur Wright Memorial Lecture, oh, maybe a few hundred yards from here in another building. After my lecture, it was George Edwards who came up to the platform and he said a few words about my talk. Now, I had to wait exactly 20 years for my revenge. <laughs> I think that I have been privileged to have met and to have known Sir George just about from the, uh, from the time in his life when I think he embarked upon the most interesting and most exciting part of it. Uh, as you may have heard, in uh, 19... 45, he was made chief designer of the Vickers Armstrong Company, uh, Vickers Armstrong Company, that's right. And ten years later, he 
became a member of the board of the company. And even though he has risen ever since to higher and higher positions in industry and has tackled more and more interesting jobs, I still think that in his heart probably those ten years were the most marvelous ones. Because that was the time when he was in intimate contact with, ev with the projects on which the company worked, and in particular that was the time when he developed the Viscount, which was one of the most exciting planes in the history of aeronautics. You may remember it was not only the plane which brought jet propulsion and the propeller jet form into being, uh, it was also a commercially very successful plane, I believe, uh, about 500 of them were sold. And uh, British European Airways flew those planes all over Europe and the Mediterranean. The French bought 12 of them, as far as I can remember. <laughs> and uh, a very interesting first, the one of the United States Airlines bought actually 60 of the planes, and I believe that was the first time that a British-made transport plane was able to break into the North American United States market. So I really believe that the Viscount has been one of the most outstanding planes of our history, and it was, as we say to America, really Sir George's baby. He was very intimately concerned with every detail of it, and uh, as a designer, he really must have had a great pleasure out of it. Now, as he told us about his life, almost 40 years in the aerospace industry, he tackled many other jobs also, but slowly he had to get away naturally from detailed design and become more interested in finance and in international affairs. And I'm sure that he's enjoyed doing all that work too. But it came a little later in his life, and the first real excitement had gone. He mentioned also that uh, he saw a great deal of future to aviation. And in particular, as you may remember in his chart, he showed that there was a 20-year gap which will be governed essentially by the Concorde and by planes designed and built in accordance with Concorde-type principles. He also mentioned that maybe the United States will also have to base its new designs on the Concorde. And if that will be the case, it will not be for the first time. Because we very, know very well that the present very successful American jets developed their technology and their design principles on the basis of another great British plane, namely the Comet. But we have to admit also that America has given something to Britain also, because the first picture which Sir George showed us was the right plane, and that was built in America. <laughs> the, one of the most interesting things to me in listening to Sir George's presentation tonight was the fact that even though he, as most of us, have aged at least 
numerically in calendar years, but somehow the youth has still remained in our hearts. And uh, the George is just as interested today in the work he's doing now as he was 20 years ago at the beginning of his career. The subject matter has changed, and now we can listen to his prophecies in connection with international affairs and the future of aviation. But uh, he feels just as enthusiastic today about his work as he did 30 years ago, or 40 years ago, or something On all these grounds, it is a very great pleasure to me to propose a vote of thanks to Sir George, a great designer, a great organizer, a great executive, and I should say also diplomat in his international dealings, but what I would like to hope more than anything else, that as far as the future of aeronautics is concerned, he is also a great prophet. So I propose a vote of thanks to Sir George.